We've been doing a series on Sunday nights entitled Living Proof and uh, looking at those various people that have, were eyewitnesses that are the, the, the absolute guarantors, if you will, of the, the facts of what occurred in the scriptures being true. And we want to continue that tonight. First of all, I want to show you a, a brief video and we'll show, look at the, just a moment. Uh, it's not my intention to make you mad tonight. This may or may not. I don't know how you'll react to it. Uh, but I first saw this on uh, on Thursday night. This this ran on CNN on Thursday night. Uh, this commercial. So without any other warning about it, just watch it. An unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusions of religion into our secular government. That's why I'm asking you to support the Freedom from Religion Foundation, the nation's largest and most effective association of atheists and agnostics working to keep state and church separate, just like our founding fathers intended. Please support the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. When I first saw that, I thought, surely this is some sort of par- a parody skit. I really did. And it's like, no, it's not. And uh, uh, first of all, there's a person you can pray for his soul. Uh, to pray to be able to understand that. But I put that on there because I want to remind us, particularly those of us who are believers, we're here with other believers, we're, we, we, we study the scriptures, we spend time in devotions, we pray, we encourage each other in the things of the Lord. But our worldview, our belief system, is not the probably the majority opinion anymore. There would have been a time when that public service announcement or advertisement, whatever you want to call it, would not have been broadcast on any, any channel in the world. In fact, I, did, I think this is correct. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure of this because I didn't have a chance to like, nail it down. But uh, that the Freedom From Religion, just the name of it is just ludicrous. The Freedom From Religion Foundation. Uh, and, and, I mean, if you want to have freedom from religion, it's really easy. No one's forcing you to go to church or whatever. I mean, we just, you don't have to, you know... Uh, obviously, we our voice needs to be heard as we have free speech. But uh, uh, I think if this is true. That aired on CNN. It, actually, they tried to buy time on CBS, and CBS turned them down, which I'm, I, I actually find that somewhat encouraging, <laughs> somewhat shocking that they would turn it down. But, uh, but our view is not the view of everybody. And there are those people that would say to us who believe what we believe in the Scriptures that we are foolish, that we are, we are the, we're not dealing with reality. That we are living in fantasy land. That we're believing in fairy tales. There's people that would very strongly, very, and if you notice Ron Reagan in that thing, he seems very confident, very sure of himself, just to dismiss, I'm not worried about, you know, the future. Uh, so we need to understand that. And that's why I think it's important for us and to be able to pass on to those that we can influence that there is reasons that we believe what we believe. And if you look right here in, in Acts as we continue our Living Proof series, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is written by Luke. I just want to read the first three verses and zero in on verse 3. Luke is writing to this person and dedicating the book, says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's the Gospel of Luke. So now he's writing a second 
volume, if you will, to give the history of the early church and, and what's going on. But uh, there's some question. Was Theophilus a, an unbeliever? He's trying to convince. Some have said that maybe gospel, uh, the gospel of Luke and Acts is, is one of the longest gospel tracts that's ever been delivered to kind of convince this person of faith. Maybe he's a person of faith who is sort of helping fund Luke and his ministry, and so it's just sort of a dedication. We don't know for sure. But look how he, what he says. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. So that's where the last book left off, the resurrection, the, the resurrection, the ascension. But he's going to add some more details to that now going forward. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Having been seen by them during 40 days... And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So you and I have every reason, every reassurance to believe what, what we believe is true. And I just want to reinforce that for you tonight. I don't want to go back to our verse that we've looked at each time in this series. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 19.15 where it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So the level of evidence to convict someone of a crime in the Old Testament system, couldn't, one witness was insufficient. It has to be at the mouth of two, preferably three. And uh, we've been looking at those places where God follows that exact pattern, that exact uh, standard, if you want to say it that way, of evidence. And then we come to the resurrection. We began last week looking at the resurrection and some of those resurrection appearances of the Lord. And as we look at those... Not, it's just not, it's not two, it's not three. It is a whole host of people. And of all the things that you could say historically in Scripture that has been given to us by many infallible proofs, it's the fact that Jesus arose from the grave after his death. So that's what we're going to look at, these infallible proofs. Now, so we begin with this. He says, uh, this former account that I made, and I'm going to give you about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Now I'm going to give you the, the next uh, statement on that. Beginning in verse 4, he begins the historical, chronological narrative going forward, and, uh, which in, entails the, the, the visit of the risen Lord, the ascension of Christ into heaven. And, and then chapter 2, the Spirit comes upon the church and, and all the outreach and all the things that you know from the book of Acts. So we first of all... These proofs are seen, and I'm going to give you eight, eight different proofs that I think are very evident in Scripture. Number one, what we believe about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is attested by eyewitness testimony. So we start with that one. And uh, it's, again, a lot more than two or three. Now, uh, there's some question as we try to put together all of the resurrection appearances of the Lord. I hope you can see this if you bring up this, this uh, next uh, uh, little chart. Uh, but uh, I'll just run through it. If you have trouble reading, I know the print's a little small. It's as large as I can make it. But there's 10 or 11 uh, appearances of the Lord Jesus in Scripture after His resurrection. And I'll, I'll show you why we're not quite sure if it's 10 or 11. But uh, number one, Mary Magdalene on that Sunday morning going to the tomb. She sees the Lord. Other women also saw Jesus. Peter, also on that Sunday, we looked at the Eumaeus disciples. They were the ones who were leaving Jerusalem, and Jesus walks along with them. So that appearance. And uh, then number five, to the ten disciples, that's all the disciples minus Thomas, recall that. That takes place on that Sunday evening, and you see the scriptures uh, that, are, that are annotated there. 
And uh, then a week later, remember Thomas, after he's told that the Lord Jesus has been raised to the dead, so I can believe unless I can touch the nail prints and, and thrust my hand into his side where he was wounded by the spear. And that occurs a week later on the following Sunday. So that's the first five, okay? And then you have this account that we, from what we gather is a week later uh, that takes place. Excuse me, I'm sorry, that was number six, excuse me. Uh, and now number seven, the seven disciples takes place in Galilee on the Sea of Galilee. This is only recorded for us in the Gospel of John and John 21. Remember, that's where Jesus comes to Peter and says, if you, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And, and that's that story in John 21. And the seven are named in the text, the seven of, of the disciples. And then there's one account, in, and we'll look at this a little bit later because we're going to wind up in 1 Corinthians 15. There's one account in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 that says that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. You talk about some eyewitnesses, there's plenty of them that were available to, to say that. And Paul, Paul is at the time of his writing, uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, a lot of them are still here. A lot of them are still around. There's some of them that have died in the interim, but in essence, if you want to find them, you can find them. And then in 15.7 of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, he says that he appeared to James. This is a mystery to us because there's nowhere else it says that he appeared to James. Paul says it. We believe it. We just don't know exactly any of the details of it. Uh, he appeared to the 11 disciples, uh, and this is, this is the, the great commission uh, event, if you will. And uh, maybe the 500 brethren, number 8 and number 10, could have been the same event. That's why we don't know if it's 10 or 11. You would ass- because he appointed them this place he's going to meet the disciples. The assumption is if word gets out that Jesus made an appointment, resurrected Jesus, makes an appointment to show up with the disciples, there's probably going to be a crowd and show up as well. So I-, I tend to think that probably they are one and the same event. It really doesn't matter, but we- they both are mentioned. And then what we would read if you went into verse 3 and here following in Acts, uh, the, the, the ascension story to the 11 disciples. And more than likely, uh, there were other believers in the Lord Jesus that were there who witnessed the ascension beyond that. So you have eyewitnesses that are there to speak to us that these things are true. Now let's add a few more statements to this that that kind of fill in and kind of flow from this fact that there were people who saw Jesus, people who knew Jesus, people who could identify Jesus, eyewitnesses, 500 plus eyewitnesses to the scene. Number two, they were also not only just eyewitnesses, they were an unexpecting audience. For the most part, in the early ones, they were shocked to see Jesus, even though Jesus had told them they should be anticipating this truth, they were shocked. There is this sort of psychological thing that if you're really expecting to see something, you might make yourself believe you saw it. And if you had this this belief so sincerely that you might become delusional. Well, the exact opposite is in play here. These people were shocked to see Jesus. It wasn't like they were expecting to see him, although they should have been expecting to see him. You understand what I'm saying. So it sort of takes that away. Uh, There is this... uh, uh, there's a psychological phenomenon known as, uh, as, as something that we can, can see. It's called confirmation bias. If you ever studied psychology, you may run into that term. In other words, what you believe, you will then go find evidence for it, and you will ignore other evidence for it. Uh, you see this when you watch your favorite team play football, okay? Yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's a catch in the end zone, and the guy comes down with the ball, 
And the question is, did he get his feet inbounds or not? Is it a score or out of bounds? All the fans for the defense says, of course he's out of bounds. I can see it. And all the fans of the offense say, of course his feet came. You know what I'm saying? We, we know what we want to see, so we kind of see it through that lens. And now they come up with all this instant replay in football and it spoils everything. But, but uh, we, 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 kind of, we kind of bend our perception based on what we expect. The fact was they weren't expecting it. It kind of just sort of negates that idea. Number three, it was unrefuted at the time. Now, you remember we looked at this in Matthew 28 about the, the guards that were at the tomb of Jesus, how they were paid off and they started spreading this story that they came and, they came and, and stole his body and try to perpetrate this hoax. But other than that, there's no historical record anywhere, anywhere that they refuted at the time that Jesus was resurrected. You remember on Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast day, this is now 50 days, about 10 days after the, the ascension, where all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God comes in a powerful way upon the believers and they, they begin preaching and they're speaking in other languages and it's this great miracle and people from all over the world, that part of the world are there in Jerusalem and they hear them speaking in their own language. You remember that? And part of what Peter says right there in Jerusalem where all of Judaism is assembled, where the people who, who condemn Jesus are still there, the high priest who was part of this plot to put him to death are still there and he declares that the Christ whom you have crucified is both Lord and Christ, and he testifies of the resurrection. There's no record that anybody tried to refute that. All they had to do was produce a body, and it would all have been over. The whole, the whole thing would have been over. But there's no refutation in real time. There was no one arguing about it, which is very important. And probably above all of the eight is the fact that it is documented. Real people, real eyewitnesses, who said they saw what they saw, wrote it down in documents that have now been passed down to us. And you understand, even in a court of law, things that are documented in documents are very powerful and sometimes even more powerful than someone giving a verbal testimony because it's been codified, it's written down. And you think about it, the things that you're willing to put in writing, it takes you to a little more level of seriousness than just casual conversation. So this was documented. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. It's certainly mentioned here in Acts in the preaching and, and what he's talking about here in verse 3. It's, it's all through the epistles. I haven't actually gone on this study myself, so I'm going to be a little bit not, not quite absolute on this. But I've heard scholars who've studied this say you can find the resurrection in every New Testament book, either by direct statement or by allusions to the fact that it occurred. And I, I really think that's probably true, although I don't have a list of verses to, to run you down tonight. But it is, I can definitely know this because it's, it's all through. It's documented. It is written down. Now, if you were trying to disprove belief in the resurrection, and by the way, if Jesus isn't raised, we got nothing. If Jesus isn't alive, we have nothing. If Jesus just died on the cross and was put in the tomb and buried and he stayed dead, we have nothing. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15. We have all, we, if, that, if Christ be not risen, we are of all men most miserable. We're the most, we'd be the most miserable people ever lived if that were true. So this is very important. So if you were going to refute this, one of the things that our enemy Satan loves to do is to attack particularly the documentary evidence, which is the New Testament. 
that, that we do it in subtle ways, that, that we, we tell people the well, only thing you can really believe, the only thing you can be sure of is what your ears hear, what your eyes see, what you can touch, what you in your own logical mind can put together. And after all, who's going to believe that someone was dead and is now alive again? In other words, don't believe the documents. Don't believe the truth. I'm going to show you another video here in just a moment. This was actually, this ran in 2014. This was a commercial that was purchased and put, uh, put on, on, on the air during the Super Bowl in 2014. Now, I believe as I've done a little research of, of this, I think it's been slightly edited. So after the video stops where you see the scenes of people, there's some words at the end. I think the person that put this online actually, uh, th- those I think were edited. I don't think that was part of the original, uh, original uh, uh, ad, but I think the rest is intact. But here's what I want you to listen for. Listen to the subtle attack on the belief in the documentary evidence. So take a look at this. To the curious, the inquisitive, the seekers of knowledge, to the ones who just want to know about life, about the universe, about yourself. Not cute questions, big questions, ones that matter. To the rebels, the artists, the free thinkers, and the innovators who care less about labels and more about truth, who believe nonconformity is more than a bumper sticker, that knowledge is more than words on a page. You're young, you're old, you're powerful beyond measure, and the fuel of that power is not magic or mysticism, but knowledge. The things you see, the things you feel, the things you know to be true. Sure, some will doubt you. Let them. Dare to think for yourself, to look for yourself, to make up your own mind. Because in the eternal debate for answers, the one thing that's true is the power of logic. Now it went really fast, but did you see that little scene where the pages are turning? It says truth is not found in words written on a page. And then it goes into that whole rift on it's what you can see. It's what you can touch. It's what you can feel. It's not about, did you catch this? It's not about mysticism or magic. It's about knowledge. Elevating man, taking us away from the knowledge of God. That's the philosophy that that flows in to attack the pages of Scripture. But I just want to remind you that when we go out with confidence, there's plenty of people speaking confidently like this, that we need to step forward and say that this has been declared by many infallible proofs and it's documented more documented than most things that are are, are found in history uh, there's a, there's a statement and this comes out of josh mcdowell's writing some of you are familiar with uh, his book evidence that demands a verdict very early in the back in the 70s the original version apologetic book defending the faith book and he talks about the gallic wars which were are taught in history that the wars from the roman empire and he goes to how many documentary pieces of evidence there are that these wars took place. And if I'm recalling, it's like seven or nine manuscripts. It's, it's like under ten. And then you have the New Testament. How many manuscripts, how many documents, how many people commenting and believing and transmitting? It, it's, it's off the charts. And this is, this is valid. This is true. And I know I don't need to convince you that these things are true. But I want you to remember, we live in a world where people are subtly attacking our belief system. 
You and I need to be able to defend it. And probably more than us. I don't think any of us are probably, and I don't want to, I mean, we could get off base, that's true. But particularly for the vulnerable, the young, the new believers, our children, you and I need to be the ones that remind them these things are true. This is not a book of fantasy or fairy tale. This is a book of documented history. It's delivered to us by these infallible proofs, and it is believable. So let's go back. Let's go back to our list. Number, I think we're up to number five. And this is probably one of the most powerful things if you think through it at all. The apostles were willing to die for the belief in the resurrection. If anybody knew if this were true or a hoax, it was the 11 disciples becoming the 11 apostles. They knew, and there would have been others that would have known. I mean, they, it wasn't something that they, were, they got secondhand. They got it firsthand. They knew whether they really saw Jesus alive after, the, after his death or they just made it up. They knew. So they, they, had the, they had the truth within themselves. Now, some people might say they lied. Some people, we believe they were telling the truth. But now think about it. If, if, if you were, if you were per, per, uh, um, how should we say, if you were putting out there a hoax, you were perpetrating a hoax, and it got right down to it, and someone says, if you don't state that that was not true, we're going to kill you. Don't you think at that point, we'd say, okay, you got me. Okay, it's up. Okay, I'm not going to die for something that's a hoax. I'm not going to die for something that I know personally wasn't true. Okay, you got me. Everything's out. These men laid down their lives. John is the only one, so far as we know, that did not die at the hands of of someone persecuting a believer who would call them a martyr. That's the, that's the church history term for these people who gave their lives. John was the only one who died, quote-unquote, of natural causes, although history tells us he was tortured. We know when he wrote the book, when he had the revelation, uh, he was exiled to a prison island on the island of Patmos, so he, he at least was incarcerated, mistreated, and tortured. But uh, nonetheless, not one of them. Not one of them ever changed their story, ever recanted, ever said it was a hoax. All of them gave their lives, with the exception of John, for it, and he gave quite a bit. So, number six, we have throughout church history an unbroken record of belief. Okay, so it's been roughly, not quite, but roughly 2,000 years since the events that we read in the Gospels and we read in Acts and we hear the epistles, okay? From that point on, it's not that there's, it, there, there's never a break. There's always been b- brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in Christ, followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, who have believed firmly that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day. This is not something that was made up late in time. This is not something that was believed and now we've outgrown it. This is something that is absolutely rock solid, bedrock solid, it's been a part of the belief system of Christians from the earliest days of the church, from the first days of the church until now. It has never changed, never wavered. Uh, most, think of all the belief systems that have come and gone. Even, even religions, there's been those that have risen and fallen. Some have endured, obviously, over millennia. But, uh, but, but many things have come and gone. Things have fallen out of style. And some things of their, of their own... Their own uh, own making, and sometimes it's it's sort of strange. Uh, there was a, there was a sect of of uh, people that was an offshoot of the Shakers, if you're familiar with that. That they believed that the that the they believed that the uh, 
the primary virtue was to remain celibate, to not, have, not marry, not have children. Interestingly, they died out after about one generation. You know, hello, what, what do you expect? There's been things that have come and gone. This has never changed. This is what believers believe. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, if you will. And we have actually at the very beginning of our study, I think we looked at this just briefly, but not in, in great detail. You don't have far to go. Just go to Acts and Romans and then 1 Corinthians. It's the next to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Paul spends the entire chapter defending the doctrine and the, histori- the historical reality of the resurrection. I mean, that's, that is the whole chapter. But he begins, and we, we looked at this at the very beginning, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. He says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So he said, I'm a, here's the gospel. The gospel's coming at you. Here it is. By which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain. If you believe these things I preach to you, you're saved. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen, excuse me, and that He was buried, and that He was rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, who's also uh, Peter, and then by the twelve, and that He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the, to, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, and am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, we preach, so we preach, and so you believed. That little package found in 11 verses is a powerful statement of the gospel. And notice what's at the core of it. Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and then was seen. And then we could, if we went back to that chart, we're not going to, we could actually add one more view of the risen Lord, which was in Acts chapter 9 when... Paul saw the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, when he was on his, on his way to Damascus uh, to, uh, to persecute the church. And that's what he mentions in verse 8. Then, uh, um, then last of all, he was seen by me also, verse 8, that as one born out of due time. I wasn't in their time frame, but I did get this view. So we have this unbroken record of what is going on all the way through. Let's add to this also. I've already referenced it, but I'll just put it on the screen in front of you. Uh, without resurrection, there is no hope. I couldn't fit resurrection in that line, but that you understand what I'm saying, okay? Without it, no hope. We are miserable. We have nothing. We have nothing at all. So what we have for us is this wonderful, proven, stated, documented, eyewitness, and all of the logic we can put to it, it makes no other sense than the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Now, why is the resurrection so critical? Well, it's the one thing that Jesus predicted that he could not control. It's the one thing that man could not accomplish, only God could do. 
It was the one thing that made him unique from all other religious figures, people, leaders, teachers, whatever term you want to use, made him unique. It is, it is really, it's, it's the point of the spear of truth, if you want to say it that way. And you think about this. Jesus predicted that he was going to die. Now, as strange as this may sound to what I'm saying, think with me. This is just some logic. Uh, you might predict you're going to die on a certain day, and if you really wanted to, you could arrange it. Okay? But no one could predict they're going to raise from the dead on a particular day three days after the crucifixion, and pull that off. It's the one thing he predicted that there's no way it could be manipulated to work any other way. It was something that only God could do. Only God could, can, can bring someone back from the dead. Now, we live in a world where we have medical technology and sometimes someone's heart may stop beating or they may be clinically declared dead and we can get them resuscitated. But they are not laying there with no heartbeat no respiration, no movement, no activity for three days and, and coming back. That's not the way it works. And you understand, even those resuscitation events, it has to happen very, very quickly or it's not going to happen at all. So this is something only God could do, the only, only thing he could pull, only he could pull it off. And it's the one thing that shows us and proves to us that God is the ultimate giver of life. And not only is he the giver of life, you ready? This is where it hits us. He's the one who has raised us from death to life as well, spiritually. I take you back, at least in your thinking, you can go there and read at some point. But the second chapter of Ephesians, we usually like to go to verse 8 and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We love that, which is, which is true. But you go on up, the, up to the beginning of that chapter, he talks about that, that we, were, we were dead in trespasses and sins that we were disobedient to God, that we, we were just lost as lost could be. We were spiritually dead. There was nothing we could do. And then verse 5 of that chapter says, but God who is rich in mercy with his great love, wherewith he loved us. He, he took us from spiritual death to spiritual life. How do we know that this happens on the spiritual realm? How do we know this is true? Because on the physical realm and the realm of Christ, he went from death unto life. There's other places where Paul highlights this even greater when he talks about we're, we're crucified with him and we're raised in the newness of life and all those realities if we don't have time to. But, but, but without this, there is no hope. It is the sure foundation that what we do and say and, and understand to believe. Now, I've already referenced this one a little bit, but let's make sure I get it on the list. It was promised by the Lord. One of the most powerful evidences that we have that this book is true is the, the prophecies given and the prophecies fulfilled. There are hundreds of them. There are dozens of them that occurred the day Christ was crucified. If, if you want one, one event, one day that was prophesied in great detail, it's the crucifixion day. And then Jesus, and I'll bring this up on the screen just because I want to kind of limit to how many places you have to turn. But Matthew 16, 21, if you'll bring that up on the screen. Here, Jesus is, is, is sharing this with the disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that's the place, and suffer many things, that's the process, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, that's the outcome, and on the third day be raised, that's the ultimate reality. Jesus predicted it all, the fact that it all took place, just as he said, is, is, is part of these infallible proofs that he has given, that he has put in front of us. 
Now you might ask, and sometimes we as believers ask ourselves this question, with all of this stuff, all this reality, all these proofs, all this verification, why doesn't everybody believe? Well, I, from a believer's standpoint, we have a hard time figuring that out. But suffice it to say, many people don't. And there's many people who don't just look at this as, well, I don't buy that. I'm going to go my own way. But then they become actively antagonistic toward people of faith and all the things that we believe. You and I need to respond to that appropriately. And I just got four things I'm going to share with you of how we can, how we can and should respond in, in, this, in this environment, especially since these infallible proofs are given. Number one, unbelievers speak with confidence. So should, uh, we should more so. I'm going to say it that way. I mean, you, you have, you know, the, the two videos you've seen, you know. We need, to be, we need to have freedom from religion. That's what's going to make America wonderful and perfect and, and better. If we just don't have, we don't have to put up with this religious nonsense. And sometimes we as believers find ourselves stammering and stuttering and coughing. And we, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer this. Because we have been so browbeaten by the media and by society and by culture that we are just, we, we, we just don't feel very confident to say that there is a God and He is the Creator. And if you were made, He created and everything was created by Him. And there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And there's only one of them. And He died on the cross for sins according to the Scriptures. It's right here in front of us. And He, rose, he was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And as he says in verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word. This is the way we are made right with God and the way that we, yes, indeed, avoid being in a burning hell and the way that we do enjoy the bliss of heaven someday. I just want to encourage you and I want to encourage me. I want to encourage us. Out there in the marketplace of ideas, speak with some confidence. Now, we can speak with love and tenderness. And we can speak with, you know, uh, you know, in dialogue. We don't just have to browbeat people with the truth, but we need to speak confidently for the truth. Why can we do that? Because we have every reason to speak confidently because he's delivered these things to us with many infallible truths. Unbelievers will speak of proof. We should more so. It's interesting, and I'm going to show you one more video clip, and you'll see that in this clip that's coming up. How people who reject the truth of Scripture and reject the truth of the gospel will just say, well, everybody knows. Everybody believes. Everybody thinks. It's a proven fact. It's just what smart people do. Okay? It, it's sort of all these things. But, but where is the proof? Well, they could cite things and put things together. But I suggest to you, especially if you're a tender-hearted follower of Jesus, there's no comparison with the infallible proofs that we have to believe these things are true. And we just start with this basis. If God said it, it's true. By the way, in spite of what you're going to hear in just a moment, that makes everything a lot more simple and easy to figure out than the complicated, convoluted nature of believing there is no God and somehow we all just happen to be here. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So we should speak a proof. Uh, We're told in Scripture that we should be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that's within us. We should be really ready to, in a plight, loving, kind, but confident way to defend our, our, our faith when it comes to that. Unbelievers will ridicule our faith. What should we do? We should still love the lost. 
You know, there's this old saying, when, you, when, you, when you've lost the argument on evidence, you attack the person. Uh, there's a, there's, there's a, and, and, and if you've ever done debate or you did that in school, there's, there's some techniques of that. But there's this where you stop attacking the evidence and you start attacking the person, <laughs> which is basically the lowest form of trying to persuade. But you'll see that. People will ridicule us. People will say we're crazy. People will say you're the problem. We're, we're what's wrong. That happens all the time. But we should be different. This is one place where we don't double down on what they do as far as proof or confidence. But this is where we go the opposite direction. We love people. We love people. And it, it, it grieves our heart to hear someone rejecting the truth and shutting the possi- even the possibility of God's existence out of their worldview. Because you and I know what a desperate lost position that puts them in. And you understand where that puts them in light of eternity. So we love the lost. And this one is probably most important of all. Unbelievers will target our children. We should more so. Uh, and I just caution us as parents, grandparents, I'm glad what we do as far as our ministry to our, 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 our youth and to our children. And, I, and there's, we live in a day where there's plenty of great resources out to help us with this. But we need to prepare the next generation or the generations after us for the onslaught of ridicule that takes place. Uh, I want to show you a, a brief video clip from a guy named, you probably know him, his name is Bill Nye. And I remember when our kids were little, he, he had the show on public television, remember Bill Nye, the science guy? And at that point, it, you know, it was just like scientific principles, kind of lighthearted stuff. Well, Bill's got an agenda these days, I don't know if you're aware of that. But uh, this, is, this is a brief clip of him talking about the belief in God as creator, Okay. And I want you to listen to the subtle ridicule of people like us. And I want you to listen particularly what he says about not his children or not children, but about our children. Okay? Just listen to this. It'll take a couple minutes. Denial of evolution is unique to the United States. I mean, we are the world's most advanced technological. So, I mean, you could say Japan. But generally, the United States is where most of the innovation still happens People still move to the United States. Uh, and that's largely because of the intellectual capital we have, the, the general understanding of science. When you have a portion of the population that doesn't believe in that, it holds everybody back, really. Evolution is the fundamental idea in all of life science, in all of biology. It's, like, it's very much analogous to trying to do geology without believing in tectonic plates. You're just not going to get the right answer. Your whole world is just going to be a mystery instead of an exciting place. As my old professor Carl Sagan said, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So once in a while, I get people that really, or that claim they don't believe in evolution. And my response generally is, why not? Really, why not? Your world just becomes fantastically complicated when you don't believe in evolution. I mean, here are these ancient dinosaur bones or fossils. Here is uh, radioactivity. Here are distant stars that are just like the, our star, but that are at a different point in their life cycle. The idea of deep time of this of billions of years uh, explains so much of the world around us. If you try to ignore that, your, your worldview just becomes... Crazy, it's just uh, untenable, self-inconsistent. 
and I say to the grown-ups, if you want to deny evolution and live in your in your uh, world that's completely inconsistent with everything we observe in the universe, that's fine. But don't make your kids do it because we need them. We need scientifically literate voters and taxpayers for the future. We need people that can. Uh, we need engineers that can build stuff, solve problems. These are, it's just really hard thing. It's it's really a hard thing. You know, in another couple centuries, though, that worldview I'm sure will be. It just won't exist. I mean, it's, it's, there's no evidence for it. So. Well, thank you for being polite and not throwing anything at the screen tonight. But just did you hear what you heard? In a couple hundred years, no one's going to believe in creation anymore. Okay? And if you believe that there is a creator, you're just going to complicate and mix everything up. You're not in touch with reality. And please, don't teach your children this. And then the most chilling words, and I'm sure they probably weren't intended as chilling as we hear them. I'll give them credit for that. Don't teach this to your children because we need them. And he goes on to talk about we need them to be scientists and engineers. I'd much rather my children know Jesus than be a scientist or an engineer, wouldn't you? And uh, so what we do with our children, what we do with those of you that work with children, some of you are teachers, some of you are parents, grandparents, uh, wherever you are, whatever you do. You, many, some of you work with children here in children's ministry. God bless you because you have an important role to play. I take you back to our verse that we began with tonight. If you, I, I, if you bring it up on the screen, thank you. To him to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Friends, those four things I shared with you, I want to really encourage you on that we would just we would practice them, that we would do them, that we would speak with confidence, that we would speak of the proofs, that we would uh, be those who return love even in the midst of ridicule, and we make sure that we target our children with the truth.